Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Uh, there is a chill wind blowing in from Washington this morning and some people think it might actually be originating in Russia. The dreaded Kremlin has been implicated overnight in the email leaking scandal that has blown apart diplomatic relations between Downing Street and the White House and now Donald Trump says he won't deal with UK Ambassador Sir Kim Darroch, adding that he doesn't know him even though there is actual footage of them speaking to each other rather warmly very recently. The President is also now having a go at Theresa May on Twitter Twitter about the mess she has made over Brexit. It's all terribly undiplomatic, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, back in the real world, Remainers have been threatened to boycott Hex sausages just because Boris Johnson was pictured visiting their factory. And Meghan Markle might be invading her own privacy soon with a regular column in Vogue magazine. I can't wait to read that. Marvellous, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later, we'll investigate just why the bill for dementia care has now rocketed up to £15 billion in the last two years while relatives wait for a reform of the social care system. And I'll be asking why on earth such a terrible disease, such a terrible illness that afflicts so many families in this country is not actually treated by the NHS as an illness. And we'll have a warning for anyone travelling to Spain on holiday this year as well. You've got to check your insurance to make sure that if anything does happen to you while you're there, uh, you will actually be covered for a hospital visit. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we've seen plenty of news following uh, all sorts of things that have been happening over in Russia since the World Cup last year, of course, since uh, Vladimir Putin was blamed for the Salisbury Novichok poisoning, uh, since all sorts of diplomats were expelled from both this country and from uh, the United States of America as well. We now hear that Russia has been implicated in the email leaking scandal that is currently afflicting the diplomatic relations between the United States of America and the United Kingdom. And we're going to speak now to Dr Andrew Foxall, uh, director of Russia. Russia studies at the Henry Jackson Society to find out why on earth the Russians would get involved, if indeed the Russians have been involved, and if they're not, why would anybody say that they are? Dr Andrew Foxall, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Good to be with you. Yes, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, I mean, it's very easy to blame the Russians for all manner of things, interfering in elections, you know, interfering in uh, European Union business, interfering in USA business, but I mean, really, why would they be interested in, in, in this particular stramash? Well, at the moment, I would say it's possible, but but not probable that, mm. that Russia was 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 behind this. Um, covert operations like you know hacking and leaking are one of the Kremlin's you know sort of what we might call toxic tactics, yeah. and and fit within Russia's playbook. Um, that was visible, as you suggested, in the in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and so too in the 2017 French presidential election. Um, and that's all part of Russia's efforts to, to divide and fragment and ultimately undermine the West. Mm. What, it, what I would say as well is, if Russia if Russia weren't behind this, then it certainly benefits from from this. You know, what what better way than to divide and fragment the West than driving a wedge between the two countries who, for example, primarily guarantee Europe's security? 
So and, if Russia how, isn't behind it, it certainly benefits from it. Yeah, and how much of this kind of uh, situation really uh, is all smoke and mirrors and is not actually substantive? Because when you see Donald Trump, the president of the United States, tweeting that, you know, he doesn't really know the ambassador and he's not going to deal with him anymore, I mean, that's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, you've got all these mechanisms by which, you know, the embassies of the UK and the embassies of the United States operate both in Washington and in London. You know, just because of one man saying he doesn't like another man, that's not really going to change much, is it? I, I don't think so. I think that I think the damage. Well, first of all, I think you know, President Trump seems to change his opinion like like the weather changes. <laughs> so That's I'm true. not necessarily sure we should take what he says today as being what he will believe tomorrow. Um, but I don't necessarily think this causes any lasting damage to the UK US relationship. You know, it's not that long ago, for example, that the US experienced WikiLeaks, and I don't think that caused long or lasting damage to its foreign policy. I think the, the greater damage is to the UK's reputation as a country that, first of all, can actually keep its own secrets. Mm. Uh, but secondly, uh, the, the, the damage, it, there's a damage caused actually to the willingness, I think, of diplomatic staff and civil servants to share honest assessments, uh, both within I suppose, within their own embassies, but also with, with Whitehall centrally. Sure. I mean, the last time we saw anything like this kind of level of, of conversation uh, diplomatically was during the Huawei business, wasn't it? And I still, I mean, every time I talk about Huawei, I always ask the question, I don't know if you can answer it, Doctor, uh, as to whether or not we are doing business with Huawei, whether or not they are gaining access to our telephone systems and our telephone kind of infrastructure, or whether we're not, because we were advised, of course, by the Five Eyes and by the, uh, the US of A not to get into bed with them. I think what's interesting, the, there is a connection, I think, between um, Sir Kim, the, the leak of Sir Kim's cables and, and Huawei, which is that, in a sense, in, in both situations we've seen, you know, they're, they're sort of symbolic or, or emblematic of, of a growing trend of doing mm. politics by leaking. Right. Um, in, in both instances, there were significant leaks that have obviously affected um, or attempted to affect um, the political discourse. And I think we're increasingly moving to a situation where um, w this will be considered a form of treason uh, and investigated by the police rather than a, you know, a sort of internal political yes. inquiry. Um, and are the, that, police that able, are, the, the are the police empowered and or able to sort of uh, figure out whether treasonous behaviour has taken place, though? Well, I think it's also I think it's true to say that our treason laws are not quite what they what they need to be, and, and indeed they should be updated. But there but there are or, or, there are certainly legal uh, mechanisms that that would allow the peace the police rather to investigate this. Right. Okay. And so the next step really for um, for Britain is to hold firm. I mean, clearly the fact that Donald Trump has said he's not going to deal with uh, Sir Kim Darrick does not mean that he should be with, uh, withdrawn in any way, shape or form. And Theresa May has put her full support behind him, uh, which may be a bit like a football manager, I suppose. It could be the kiss of death. But, I mean, he is being described as a sort of political appointee. He is being described as a man who's not particularly pro-Brexit, who is rather uh, pro-Remain, in fact. Um, so, I mean, it all gets a little bit murky around there, doesn't it? Well, Sir Kim's tenure is, is due to end at uh, the beginning of next year, or right. end of this year, beginning of next year. So we are due a, uh, a, a new ambassador. For, for a while, there had been suggestions that that might be um, Mark Sedwell. But given that, that he, he has a similar approach or understanding of the, of the European Union to Sir Kim, whether, whether, um, whether that will go ahead, I, I, I don't know. It's clearly an issue for the, for the new prime minister um, to, to to decide, I think what what is interesting actually with the um, with the um, with the Sir Kim with the leaks of Sir Kim's memo is that 
um, of course, it was Isabel Oakeshott um, who broke who broke the story, and she's somebody um, who has previously um, sat on evidence that um, that that Aaron Banks, for example, had far more extensive contacts with Alexander Yakovenko, Russia's ambassador to the to the UK, than Banks had previously claimed, and that obviously came to light um, last June, uh, and related to quite extensive contacts between banks uh, and the ambassador between 2015 and, and 2017. All the while, I say that because um, th- there have been, I think, some some attempts to smear Carol Cadwallader, who, who, who suggested that perhaps the Russians are behind this leak uh, of Sir Kim's memos uh, of, of the Sir Kim... Uh, so are uh, you saying that because Isabel Oakeshott's involved that they must have come in some way, shape or form via someone close to Aaron Banks? Is that what you're suggesting? No, that's that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that um, uh, is that um, there have been uh, within certain parts of the media attempts to smear Carol Cadwallader for suggesting that uh, that Russia was behind these leaks. Um, and uh, my point simply is that some of those individuals who are, who, are, who have been smearing Carol Cadwallader have previously accused her of peddling conspiracy theories. All the while, they have themselves sat on evidence that suggests... Well, the trouble with conspiracy theories is that, is, is that conspiracy theories can often be correct or at least based on some kind of um, fact, while the conspiracy theory itself might be a slightly over-expanded version of that. Indeed, indeed, yes. So, I mean, the Carol Cadwallader feud that goes on between her and Aaron Banks and, and the two various sides of that surely are small time compared to what's actually going on here in Washington because whoever has had access to these emails, and I'm told that the list is bigger than we thought at first, there's around about 100 people that could have seen these, surely it makes much more sense, does it not, for a sort of disgruntled civil servant to have passed this to someone um, and somehow it ends up in Isabel Oakeshott's intray. Well, I think um, judging by the content of the leaks, I, I think you're quite right that that some of the some of the some of the content would suggest that it had a relatively wide distribution, yeah. so a hundred or so people. Yeah. But but some of them, uh, some of the content would actually suggest that it was actually a higher level of sensitivity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, is it so wise? Actually, actually uh, a much a much smaller pool of people. Sure. So, you know, perhaps 10, 12, 15 or so. So I think actually by, you know, simply by going through the the people who would have had access to that, it it would be relatively, I say, easy and straightforward, Mm. but it it will be relatively straightforward to identify actually who had access to that. The people who had access to that information would likely have signed the Official Secrets Act, um, but they wouldn't clearly have passed that information to individuals who hadn't signed the Official Secrets Act. I mean, surely it's pretty easy to sort out exactly who could have possibly... Uh, pass this information on, isn't it? I mean, if it, even if it's 100 people, you know, you can get through an investigation with 100 people relatively quickly and rule out probably 50 of them straight away um, after one or two conversations. I mean, you wouldn't expect this to go on terribly long, would you? Uh, you, you wouldn't, um, and unfortunately, the, the powers that be, the authorities on Whitehall, actually have um, pretty recent experience of conducting precisely these sorts of inquiries into leaks, which we suggested earlier, one only has to think about Huawei. So um, one would hope that that the um, that you know actually both for um, uh, both for both publicly and privately um, the the investigation or the inquiry will will be wrapped up pretty soon and we'll have a have a conclusive answer. I think it's notable that when a, when an inquiry like this last happened with Huawei. The individual who was blamed, Gavin Williamson, the then Defence Secretary, 
actually still vehemently denies that he was the person mm. behind the leak. So just because we have a name, it doesn't necessarily conclusively mean that, um, that that's the person who was behind no, it. No, it doesn't. I very much was of the opinion during the Williamson firing that he was taking carrying the can, if you like, for some senior civil servant, again, uh, who may or may not have been operating at his behest, but who certainly was working for him, if you know what I mean. So, so here we have a similar situation where I worry slightly that our civil service is not as neutral as it's supposed to be in these matters. I think there's, there's, as you suggested earlier, there's, there's been a tendency over recent years to, to, um, to, to, to hack and leak. Um, or, I mean, we say hack, but actually we mean steal. Mm. If, if these, you know, if this were, uh, it's actually stealing that's taken place rather than hacking. Um, and there has been an increasing trend over the last few years for this to, to take place. And clearly that may well take place at a political level, but mm. also at a, at a civil service level as well. I mean, is it wise that these kinds of documents are circulated so widely? Because if you write something down, um, obviously sometimes um, it's likely to get into the wrong hands. And, and if you've got 100 people looking at this kind of material, given the sensitivity of it, um, are they going to have to look at maybe changing the system after this? I think you, you you make a valid point. You know, certainly, um, you know, when when we're, for example, um, told about writing personal emails you, you, or, or even professional emails in any workplace, you know, bear in mind how that would look if, for example, it ended up on the front page right. of the newspaper. I mean, we used to call it, when I worked in Fleet Street, we used to call it the private eye test. How's this going to look when it's in private eye? And if it's not going to look good, then you better not do it. <laughs> Precisely. Unfortunately for, for Sir Kim, that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. So there is, I think, a, a degree of, you know, quote-unquote good housekeeping that's going to be involved. You know, let's be sensible about what we put down on paper. And I think, as I said earlier, I think that's one of the possible consequences, one of the damages that, that the Sir Kim leaks will cause. Mm. But, but for diplomacy to take place, we do need a mechanism through which um, our men and women in various capitals of the world can send back their open and honest assessments of the, of the countries and politicians um, where they're based and with whom they engage. Well, because we haven't been privy to what else might have been in this sort of cache of documents, if you like. And there may well be other stuff which Isabel Oakeshott's got, which she's holding on to for next week. I mean, you know, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that there might be things which could cause or put maybe people around the world in danger. Absolutely. I, I mean, also the Sir Kim's description of, of Washington as being dysfunctional, um, as being fragmented, as being divided, could easily be, for example, the US ambassador Woody Johnson's description of London at the moment. Um, but we, don't, we know what Sir Kim thinks. We don't know, for example, what Ambassador Johnson thinks. Right. Um, uh, but the, the same is true across the world. And as you suggest, it will be interesting if the, if the leaks that we've seen at the moment are in isolation, if this is in some senses the sum total of what Isabel Oakeshott has, or if there's much more to come. Yeah. If there is, then, you know, then potentially the impacts and the damage will be, will be much greater. Stand by your beds, as they say. And, and, and poor old Liam Fox has been sort of tasked with smoothing it all over, hasn't he? He's got to go and see Ivanka Trump. Uh, over in Washington, hopefully, uh, to see uh, whether or not anything's changed. And he doesn't really know. He, he doesn't know, and, and we don't know at the moment. As I said, I don't think that this, in the long term, causes lasting damage, mm. but certainly in the short term, 
um, it, it causes an awful lot of inconvenience. We saw that Sir Kim, for example, was uninvited to a uh, to a to an event last night in in Washington D.C., um, which is which is a which is obviously a, a bad sign of of the current state of the relationship. I, to be honest, I think that for a while we haven't done diplomacy in Washington as well as others have done. The French, the Canadians, I think do, you know, quote unquote, play DC much better than we do. I think we do the United Nations much better than we do the White House, for example. Mm. So I do think, you know, we had to rethink how we do diplomacy in Washington. And as unfortunate as this might be, perhaps this is the... Um, this is a thing that will, will, will get us to rethink how we do DC. And can he survive, do you think, Derek, then, until the end of the year, until he is replaced by somebody uh, who is going to be presumably introduced to Donald Trump as a big fan of Donald Trump, just to be nice to him? I think he can. I think in some senses he will He will have to. I think it would be a... a, a um, uh, it would not reflect well on the UK... Um, and UK sovereignty and independence if we now withdrew Sir Kim simply at the behest of, of the US president. I think there will, you know, the special relationship, as you suggested earlier, goes far beyond particular individuals and particular institutions. So we will have ways of doing diplomacy mm. um, in DC that is not directly between Sir Kim and the White House. And in fact, one of the interesting things from this from Sir Kim's leaks, was the extent to which actually he d didn't really have that much contact with the White House anyway, and that he had felt a need to cultivate relations with individuals and institutions close to President Trump in order to basically find out what Trump thought about any, about any number of issues and any number of policy areas. And his main kind of uh, in, uh, in flagrante, I suppose, is that he's been caught out being two-faced. I mean, everybody accepts, I was saying this on the show yesterday, everybody accepts that you have to be a bit two-faced to be a diplomat and you have to, uh, you know, play one side off against the other. But the, the trick is not to get caught and not to look foolish and not to look an embarrassment for your government and indeed for your country. And unfortunately, that's kind of how he's looking at the moment. He doesn't come out of it well. No. However, however, the I think you know, I think unfortunately for for Sir Kim, he's he's largely put down on paper what most people had assumed was the reality in D.C. Anyway, reading the leaks, I wasn't particularly surprised by what what he said. Um, the notion of uh, President Trump being particularly petulant, I think we see that in Twitter. The notion of him being particularly reactionary, I think we see yeah, that... Yeah, so which, which begs the question, why write it down? If everybody already knows it, why bother writing it down? Well, because that's the nature of, of diplomacy. I think just because we assume that that's the case, it's necess nevertheless necessary for the ambassador to send back to Whitehall exactly what the reality is mm. as he or she sees it. Yes, it's fascinating stuff. Dr Foxall, thank you very much indeed. Andrew Foxall there, uh, director of the Russia Studies Centre at the Henry Jackson Society. What do you make of what he had to say there? That basically the Russians may or may not have been involved, but it doesn't seem terribly likely. Although, certainly they may be uh, benefiting from whatever it is that has happened. But surely the problem here uh, is that our ambassador, in our man in Washington DC, if you like, uh, Sir Kim Darroch, uh, has made a bit of a pig's ear of all of this. You know, and I said yesterday... It's not that surprising uh, that he says one thing to the presidential aides and he says quite another to his own boss. 
i.e. the Prime Minister of this country. However, you don't get caught out writing it down, do you? Uh, Steve says this, as Jim Hacker once said, the ship of state is the only known vessel that leaks from the top. Well, that's very true. And that's, of course, from a fictional TV series, which is actually more non-fiction than fiction when you think about it, because it's quite a fascinating situation, this. Uh, what we do know uh, is that we'll have a new Prime Minister in less than two weeks, or just slightly over that. We've got a debate tonight between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. I'm not quite sure why we're bothering with that. And we're now blaming the Russians once again for some kind of uh, screw-up that happened at a very, very senior level in diplomatic circles with our closest ally. It's an absolute shambles. I mean, is there anything that this woman, Theresa May, can't get wrong, completely screw up and embarrass everybody? I'm getting quite fed up with it. Uh, 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls next on Talk Radio. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Union This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the only place uh, where you get common sense, the only place where we cut through uh, all the political spin, the machinations of Whitehall, all the nonsense you hear from the various advisors to various MPs, various leaders of various parties. The story this morning about the Labour Party, and don't forget, tomorrow night's the Panorama programme, uh, which is going to put a very, very fine focus onto Jeremy Corbyn and to the accusations of anti-Semitism. The story today is that Labour is poised to declare that it will campaign for Remain in a second referendum, right? This despite the fact that they said, very openly and very plainly, that in their manifesto they would honour the referendum result of 2016, which was to leave the European Union. Quite how they get to this position is beyond me. Uh, but apparently the joint position that they have come to has been agreed by unions as well as the leadership of the Labour Party. Let's talk to Ronnie Campbell now, Labour MP for Blythe Valley, uh, who has probably one or two things to say about this. Ronnie, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, now, I mean, forgive me for, for, for not taking this quite as seriously as I should, but what is going on in the Labour Party, man? Well, we knew this was coming. Uh, he's been under a lot of pressure to uh, wield to the the remainers in the party, of course, and uh, it was coming. But I expected it anyway because he's he's under enormous pressure. Yeah, he is. Yeah, but who would have thought the Labour Party would also be under pressure from the unions, the trade unions, Indeed. who suddenly Indeed. now have found themselves on the wrong side of history by by going against the democratic vote, by going against everything that that trade unions have stood for in the past, as far Indeed. as I'm concerned, to suddenly want to be a part of this sort of global elite that sit around yeah. in Brussels, having never been elected, and taking That's everybody's right. money. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm just wondering if the unions have uh, sounded out their members. Well, I'm a member of the union. I've never been asked. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Well, maybe they don't want it to was, ask you in yeah. case you say no. Well, that, that may be it. And, you know, the, I, I don't know why they want another referendum. They didn't take any notice of the first one. Well, exactly. This is what they I want. What another one for? This is what I want to know. I mean, the reason we're in this it's bind, and I accept that it's a bind, and I accept that it's difficult to get out of, but we're here because we had a referendum. Having another referendum ain't going to solve anything. It's going to put us in another well, bind, isn't it? The, the, problem, the problem we've got is, and sometimes on the Tory side, but more on our side, is that most of the parliamentary Labour Party... Or remainers. Yeah. And 
they, they don't want to take any notice of the referendum. That didn't mean a thing to them. They've been fighting that referendum since it was called three years ago. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? it? They have. Now, Ronnie, I don't know how easy it is for you to figure out precisely what Labour Party policy is now, and I'm not certain, but so what we thought we would do is replay something that Julie Hartley Brewer said this morning, where she summed up exactly what Brexit policy the Labour Party and the affiliated unions have now actually agreed to. In the event of a no-deal Brexit led by a Tory government, uh, they would campaign for a second referendum and would campaign for Remain. In the event of a Tory deal of any sort, they would campaign for a second referendum and for Remain. If, however, uh, there were no Brexit, there ended up being a general election and a Labour government and they tried to negotiate a Brexit deal, they would still go for a second referendum on that deal or Remain and they would po possibly campaign for that deal possibly campaign for Remain. That's as clear as I can make it. So there's only really one way to go then, isn't there, Ronnie? Is that clear? Well, you better, can you rewind that again? Because I didn't catch it most of it. <laughs> the problem is, right, it's the same outcome no matter what you do. I mean, last conference yeah. you had last year, yeah. they kept saying, right, well, obviously everything's still on the table, so we're not going to rule out a second referendum, but we're not going to rule it in either. Now they're going to no. rule it in, um, but they're not going to rule out having a general election. They're not going to rule out um, remaining in the European Union. So, I mean, what the hell does it all mean? I've got the answer, because it's all double Dutch to everybody. Yeah, but I've is. got a great answer. OK. Let's have a referendum to see if we want another referendum. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, even if we had a second <laughs> referendum, what we don't yet know is what the question would be, what would be on the, course, on the, yeah. on the paper. We, all we do know is the Labour Party say they would, um, they would be uh, campaigning to remain, so presumably remain would have to be on the paper. I don't see, that, that's, I don't see that it should be. Well, that's that's what that's what they will do. They'll have remain definitely have remain on. What the other question will be is anybody's guess. Yeah. Now, do you think we'll ever leave the European Union? In all honesty, because I don't. Do you know, Sonic? I, I, I thought about that many times, and and reality, I think we've had a dozen, a dozen referendums, and they were all to leave. I still think they'll be fighting to remain. Yeah, I know, because everybody will be able to come up. There's too many lawyers all over this, right? Because every time you get a lawyer involved, they find a reason to stop something, right? They're not Indeed. very good yeah. at making mm -hmm. things happen, but they're very good at stopping things. And what they'll yeah. say is, oh, well, of course, you didn't think of that when we had that particular referendum vote. You didn't think of this. You didn't think of that particular outcome. You didn't wonder whether this might happen or that might happen or, you know, the sun might shine or the, the rain might fall. I mean, it's <coughs> unbelievable. It is interesting to know that people do say to me, including the wife of my dad, who voted Remain, right. said if there's another referendum, I'll vote to leave. <laughs> and a lot of people have said that to me. He said, well, right. I'll, vo I'll vote to Remain. And, I'll, you know, that was a decision. Which, well, and there's a lot of people think like that. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, if, if this is throughout the land or just up Geordie land, I'm not sure, I might be just up our end of the country. But if, it, if, it's, if people are thinking like that you know, they may get a shock at another referendum. Well, I've always said, I think if there is another, re another referendum, there would be a bigger vote to leave than there was before because a lot of people are fed yeah. up with the way that the Remainers have tried to block everything, they're fed up with the way the European Union has behaved and they are fed up listening to some politicians, amongst them one of your <laughs> colleagues, Steve Doughty, who told me on this very radio station he's got thousands of emails from people saying they voted to leave but now they want to stay. Absolute rubbish, right? And the fact no, that he I've couldn't... Never had one. I've the, never fa had one. the fact that he couldn't back 
back that up meant that he then blocked me on Twitter and now doesn't speak to me. You know, but the bottom line is, guys like you, Ronnie... He's a little the... boy at school, isn't he? He is, he really is. He needs to grow up. But, I mean, guys like yourself, Ronnie, you've been in the business a long time. You represent your, your, your constituents. You know that in the northeast of England, they are Brexit Party voters. The Labour Party yes. will get hammered in the general election up there because they'll all vote for Nigel Farage. They might. That might happen. My yeah. son's actually joined his party. I'm foreman of them. Is that right? He's appeared. He's 25 quid. He's now a member of Brexit There you go. Party. Well, there you go. I mean, maybe you should join him, Ronnie. But listen, thanks very oh, much no, indeed. No. Ronnie, Ronnie Campbell, Labour MP for Blythe Valley. What a sensible man. He knows exactly which side his bread is buttered on. His own son has gone to join the Brexit party, for heaven's sake. 25 quid. Subs in. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Come on, we'll get the bus. If we leave pretty soon now, I can't go to the club. Cos I've not got much money. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Welcome to Talk Radio 03444991000, the place where you find things out that you never really knew about. Now, we were just talking about how ridiculous it is uh, that we have £15 billion going south from most people's pockets because they may own a home, because they may have savings, they may have assets, and they're having to pay for critical care uh, for their loved ones, for their elderly relatives, people who might have got dementia or even Alzheimer's disease, and how there's a big sort of black hole at the heart of the NHS and the heart of local government coverage of all of that. Um, I'm going to now talk to a man who's going to tell me that actually there's an awful lot of millions of pounds of, of money disappearing out of the universal credit scheme um, because fraudsters have somehow managed to find a loophole by which they can remove money uh, and never have to give it back. Greg Hurst is the social affairs correspondent at The Times. Greg, a very good morning to you. Morning. Welcome to the show. Um, this is a remarkable story. The BBC first reported this. Uh, you've picked up on it in The Times today. Criminals basically making online requests for cash and getting it. Which yes. seems extraordinary, doesn't it? It's a great embarrassment to the government because the universal credit uh, welfare reform, if you remember, was meant to reduce the risk of fraud. Right. It was meant to fold six different means tests, means tested benefits into a single uh, benefit and to be easier to understand, clearer, and to have lower administration costs, and crucially, to be less vulnerable to yeah. fraud. And yet the, it, it appears that fraudsters have found this weak point and are using the system to claim loans on behalf of people who legitimately are entitled to universal credit and um, uh, take £1,000, £1,500 a time. And much of it seems to be around sort of uh, false identities, stolen identities, that kind of thing, which I suppose does go on in lots of other areas. But it seems remarkable that some of these people have been making claims under names like Bart Simpson, um, Harry Kane, uh, you know, the England Spurs player. This doesn't look as if somebody's being terribly good at keeping a track of all this. No, that, that does suggest there's a, there's a, a problem that um, fraudsters think uh, it's quite easy to access this money. They would need some sort of either collusion, cooperation or duping of a legitimate claimant because right. this is an advanced loan that somebody, uh, if they have a cash crisis, they're entitled to claim some of their money up front and then they would pay it back typically over a year with lower monthly uh, payments mm. to their universal credit. And so the loan goes into the bank account of a claimant. And what it appears to what appears to be the case is that some fraudsters are posing as Job Centre Plus staff, uh, saying to someone, I can arrange you a loan. Mm. And then when the loan 
uh, is approved after this online process appears in the bank account of the claimant, these fraudsters are, are, are asking for a fee or a cut right. from the bank account of the claimant. But these are people who have very low incomes. And so if you're suddenly left to pay all that money and a fraudster's walked off with half, three quarters of it, you're in trouble. Sure, because one of the things we hear all the time from critics of the system say, uh, well, you know, an awful lot of people who are deserving of universal credit have to wait quite often longer than they should have to wait. They get into hardship because the, 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 the admin is so sort of cumbersome and it doesn't come to them as quickly as it ought to. Clearly, as I've always suspected with an awful lot of these systems, if you know your way around them, you can get whatever you want out of them. It's a good point. This, the reason this is so embarrassing for the government is just as you say that a lot of critics have um, claimed, uh, have, have, have attacked universal benefit for its design in that you can wait typically mm. five weeks to get any money right. when you make a claim because you have a very low income. And uh, universal credit is designed to be paid in the same way as a salary would, so you're paid a month in arrears, and it's designed to make people who are on means-tested benefits uh, prepare themselves for work, one, one, one way being uh, being paid in the same way as you would a salary. Now, in answer to this criticism that people are having to wait five weeks without any money, this system of advanced payments uh, has been um, introduced and is often cited by members of the government to say, no, 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 you won't be left without money. If you really need it, you can claim an advanced loan. And it's exactly this system that fraud fraudsters seem to have cottoned onto. So that's why it's just so embarrassing for the government. And presumably the government has seen this money disappear and will not get it back. I mean, if they do get it out of these bank accounts, um, which are genuine, uh, presumably it doesn't sit in there for very long and the money's long gone. Uh, I think the tough thing is that that because it's paid to the bank account of a claimant, someone in receipt of universal credit, that claimant may be held liable for mm. the money and have to repay it. Now, what I don't know is is if that person can show that they were defrauded and had no involvement, no collusion, whether that will be written off. But in some cases where there is a suspicion of some sort of collusion, it's the claimant who will have to pay back the money by having lower monthly benefits and the fraudster walks off with the money. OK. Well, listen, we've got a call from James in Sunderland, so let's have a listen to that. You might want to put some headphones on. You might want to hear what James has got to say. James, very good morning to you. What do you want to say? Hi, Mike. Yeah, hi. hi. I've, just started, I've just started claiming uh, universal credit. Right. And last month, they took £500 out of my benefit because they said the Inland Revenue have received tax and national insurance against my national insurance number. And on that basis, they reduced, they took £500 out of my benefit. Well, now, so so, so what, did, somebody, did somebody impersonate you then? Somebody used your national insurance number? That's, that's what it looks like. The, the, they're saying it's for me to prove that I never earned really? that money. Yes, and they won't, they won't give me uh, the bank details that it was paid into. They won't tell me who the employer was. They won't tell me when it happened. They just gave me a range of dates. And they say, well, it's up to you to prove that mm. you never got that benefit. That and sounds they're left, shocking. They left with absolutely nothing. Mm. I mean... Let me, let me, let me, let me, hang on a sec, James. Let me just ask Greg. I mean, Greg, is that is that the kind of thing um, that you're hearing about? That people are unwittingly being used, um, and then they're not really being told that what's happened, and, and they're being penalised. It's a very complicated system. Is is as our caller says, the onus of proof is on him right. to prove it, rather than the other way around. If if they're saying that um, these uh, tax and national insurance liabilities uh, mean you're 
um, not owed as much money as you um, as you think you're entitled to. How can you prove that's yeah. not the case? It seems to, seems the well, wrong way around to me. And also, James, how do you know it's not going to happen again? Well, exactly. And the thing is, Mike, I'm at the end of my tether. I'm, I'm ready to do myself in. It's terrible. James, listen, and man. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, is there is there a Citizens Advice Bureau near where you are? Could you go and see them and see what they say? I've been speaking to them. I went to see them. They don't care. They say it's up to me to prove it. It's up to me to prove it. Not for them. That's awful. That really is awful. Let me let me try and find some way of helping you out, James, because you can't be uh, you know losing the will to live over it because it's not. It may seem very important, but it's not that important. Okay, um, we'll we'll come back to you. We'll find some way of uh, of finding a way through. Maybe leave your name and number with um, with our producers. That's a shocking story, Greg, because it's not in any way fair for people to be expected to. I mean, to even know where to start. Where would you begin? Yes, the, it goes back to the point we were discussing earlier. Universal credit was meant to simplify yeah. the benefit system. Anyone going through these benefits would tell you how complicated they are. And it was meant to fold all these rules into a simple, simpler um, uh, monthly payment and yet talk to people. And it's, they find yeah. in many cases... It's I mean, the figure in your simple. piece here today, which says 10% of the 100,000 advances paid each month are potentially fraudulent. It's a very high figure, isn't it? It would be, yes. So the Department for Work and Pensions, which is the government department that administers this benefit they do acknowledge it's a problem they haven't at this stage quantified it so this is coming from um, some of the uh, job center plus staff discussing amongst themselves what they're seeing in individual uh, job centers so we don't yet have an overview but we there's certainly a problem particularly in parts of the north of england i think mm, i think that seems to be the case well it's, it's an incredible story and, and one that i'm sure will will resurface because uh, baroness buscombe uh, you quote in here the work and pensions minister saying to people treat your personal information for benefits benefits in the same way you would for your bank well uh, if you think you've been targeted we urge you to report it we urge you to report it urgently well what's james supposed to do if, in that case because he's being told he's you know they're reporting to him he can't he, who's he supposed to report it to Yes, it, it does seem desperately um, uh, unfortunate for James. I hope he can get some some advice yeah. um, from, from someone. I'm sure there will be people, organisations that would help him through with this. Mm. This, this yeah, claim. we're going to try and find out who we, who we can go to to get him some help because he does sound as if he's literally at the end of his tether. Well, Greg, listen, thank you very much indeed uh, for coming in and talking to us about that because it is a massive scandal. Uh, ridiculous that some of these claims have included false details such as children's names given as ha, 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 uh, one gave a landlord's name as Harry Kane. One gave another name as Bart Simpson. It really is quite remarkable. If any of you uh, listening to James there up in Sunderland have got any idea as to who he could go to to let him uh, find a way out of this nightmare, uh, it would be very much appreciated if you could let us know. You don't have to come on the air. Just give us some information and we will try and get some for him as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Lots more coming up in the next hour. We're going to be taking more of your calls, of course. Uh, we'll also be talking about GCSE English which is getting a modern makeover. You won't just be doing uh, the taming of the shrew anymore. Uh, you might be doing stories about teenage fathers and you might be doing stuff that's a little bit more trendy than you were used to. Also, we'll find out why hundreds of British holidaymakers going to Spain might need to check their insurance to see if it's actually valid when they're on holiday. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights day out before us and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I 
This is the Independent Republic of Mike Gray and Matthew Wright coming up at one o'clock, of course, with Kevin O'Sullivan taking all the way through until four. Uh, we've been here since ten. We've had some great calls today. We've done some very, very interesting stories and uh, I'm particularly interested uh, in the whole coverage of this dementia problem, which we are facing uh, £15 billion worth uh, of fees for, which seems utterly ridiculous. Let's talk now, though, about another favourite subject of mine, and that is, of course, motoring, because as if uh, it wasn't difficult enough for motorists to try and navigate their way around all the cyclists in every part of Britain these days, navigate their way around the speed cameras, the speed bumps, the traffic calming, uh, you know, the movable speed cameras, the fixed speed cameras, uh, the average speed cameras. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now the police have come up with yet another great idea. They're going to put a couple of drones up so that they can catch you speeding while they're in the air. Let's talk to Nick Freeman, friend of the show, high-profile uh, lawyer specialising in speeding uh, and driving cases. Nick, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, mate. It seems to me that if you're driving along and you suddenly spot something flying above you, um, it's going to cause an accident, isn't it? Well, it's going to distract you. Um, I have to say that I would have thought these resources would be better deployed by putting them over areas where there are masses, masses of burglaries because the police seem to be inept, <laughs> I'm afraid, of detecting those. These devices cost £80,000 each. You need a man to operate them. And... Um, this wasn't the original purpose of them, and mm. what they what they will do is basically a camera in the sky. It's a cheap police helicopter, right. and what it will do is record bad driving. But it then has to record the number plate, so it's going to have to fly down very low to get the number plate. And even if it does that and succeed and doesn't scare the driver and cause the driver to be distracted and do something stupid, if there is a particularly bad piece of driving, the police are then reliant upon a system of uh, the driver or the register keeper nominating who the driver yeah. was. So, you imagine, for example, someone was driving horrendously and racing, and of course that, that sort of behaviour is deplorable. And eventually the register keeper gets a notice and uh, he realises what he's done and, and thinks, well, if I say it was me, I'm going to go to prison. Um, and he might decide then not to comply with his legal obligations and say nothing. He can only be prosecuted for failing to provide information, mm. which is six, six penalty points right. and a financial penalty. So uh, in my view, we have the safest roads in Europe. We have the, the roads are full of robotical policing. Uh, and what the system doesn't do is it doesn't deal with drug drivers, drink drivers, people who are carrying illegal weapons, people are carrying all sorts of stolen goods. It's just more robotical policing, and I think that the resources will be much better deployed, uh, as I say, trying to detect burglars, yes. which um, the police seem totally inept at <laughs> doing. Or, or, or indeed uh, detect people stealing cars, which is happening more and more. I mean, I see more and more people, as they get into their brand-new Range Rovers and Bentleys, actually taking a crook lock off the steering wheel because they're so worried about their car being nicked that they're putting the old-fashioned the, the old defences on it. Yeah, and the unfortunate thing is it would cost the manufacturers literally buttons to rectify that, but that's obviously a matter for the manufacturers. That's, but yes, yeah. there, there, are so, there are so many better directions that this, this type of equipment should be used. But it is a police helicopter on the cheap, and I think it's totally unnecessary. We, what we really need is more police officers patrolling our roads so that they can use a discretion and they can detain people. All the people who are drink driving and drug driving, there are masses of them and they just go undetected. And you see them on the road, you see the yeah. vehicles moving around. And I suppose it's also important to bear in mind that many cars now do have cameras attached and any particular bad driving that the, a driver notices, they, they send to the police and the police, if they can be bothered, then decide whether to pursue it or not. So mm. I, don't, I really don't think we need them. And if we do need them, I mean, if resources were, 
weren't a problem, then I can see in a very limited set of circumstances some benefit. But I, I, as I've said, we need to deploy these resources yeah. elsewhere. And as you said, even if there was um, some infraction and, and some criminal offence taking place, if the driver decides not to identify himself, that's one thing. But also, even if the driver does, I would imagine a smart lawyer, and I don't wish to, to suggest that you would be one of those, but, you know, a smart lawyer could probably look at that footage and somehow bring into doubt the possibility of how it was shot, where it was shot from, what the angles are like. You know, it's not necessarily admissible in every single court in the land anyway. Well, it certainly isn't by itself admissible. The police would have to get it into an admissible format, which they could do. Um, but it, it's, of, it's of limited use. Um, and it, it's not, in my view, going to detect speed because they, the, hump, the, the loops and um, uh, the tricks that they would have to perform to show that the, if they had, for example, a, a measured distance and then they would have to prove that the distance was measured, they'd have to call the certified engineer to prove he'd measured it. We'd then have someone with a, a clock and we'd have to prove that the clock was working. So there are all sorts of hoops that they'd have to, yeah. to jump through to prove that the speed was accurately detected. I don't think that's the purpose. I think the purpose is to detect the idiots on our roads who do drive from time to time like idiots and they need to be removed from our roads but I just don't think this is the way of doing it. The way of doing it is sticking police on the roads who, who are the eyes and they can, they, just their very presence is a deterrent. Mm. And as you rightly said at the start, if someone is aware of something hovering above you, which is then going to come right down um, to the level of your car to get that number plate, that, you're going to be frightened. You're going to be worried yeah. what on earth is going on. Is that a terrorist going to take me out? What, what's going well, quite. on? And you're also, not going to they're, feel they're, at all comfortable with it. And it's going to distract you, and that in itself is going to cause you to drive in a way that isn't. And they're not foolproof instruments, are they? Are they either? I mean, you know, you could you could accidentally crash it into a car. You could accidentally drop it onto a car. You could accidentally accidentally hit somebody's front window or the back window with it. I mean, there's no guarantee that these things can be operated safely at all points. Well, of course, there isn't, and you need the person who was operating it who's have to go into, he's going to have to operate it at all times. But you imagine there's a, a drone hovering on the motorway. It's not just the car in relation to which its attention is attracted, but all the other vehicles, they're all going to be aware of it. What are they concentrating on? Are they concentrating on their speed? Are they concentrating on what is around them? Or are they fixated with something hovering over their head? It's a very bizarre situation. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that I'm looking at at the moment, because I get sent loads of stuff as, as we're on the air, apparently there's a documentary tonight on Channel 5, Britain's Most oh. Hated Cyclist uh, is yeah. starring in some kind of bike road rage documentary where basically he's going around filming everybody uh, that he gets into rucks with. He wears now protective clothing, you know, body armour effectively, and basically so reports all of... about... Um, uh... Mr. Sherry. Yes, Mr. I think Sherry. that's his name, yeah. Because I, th I think I've actually contributed to the programme. And he, look, he, he's a cyclist vigilante, and w what he's doing... Yeah, Dave Sherry from Harlow. Dave Sherry, that's right. What he's doing is he's demonstrating the number of people in cars who are on their phones. And he does have a point. Uh, and his point is, look, there are a plethora of motorists who are um, thwarting the road traffic regulations. They're fixed to the phone. He often sits by a car window... And the person is so distracted by their mobile phone or her mobile phone that they fail to notice his attention. He, of course, is recording it, and that evidence goes to the police. And very often, these people are prosecuted. And, and as appalling as that may sound, we have to remember that the police do not detect people from committing offences. And it's driving whilst using your mobile phone is as dangerous as drink driving, yeah. and nothing seems to happen about it. And no. until we have police on the roads, we're reliant on these sort of headlight grabbers um, 
to, to make our roads safer, which isn't the way it should be going, I'm afraid. No, it really shouldn't. Well, let's hope this drone idea gets uh, uh, droned out before uh, they actually decide to do anything with it. Thanks very much indeed. Nick Freeman, um, specialised a lawyer specialising in speeding and driving cases there, telling us why. I mean, the idea of putting a drone up that follow you around is just mental, isn't it? Ridiculous. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.